Good afternoon and welcome to Contemporary Pharmacotherapy for OAB 2021 Monotherapy and Combined Pharmacotherapy to Optimize Treatment, presented by the AUA. We strive to offer outstanding educational courses and greatly appreciate your evaluations and general feedback so we can continuously improve our programs. We thank you for joining us. Before we get started, I'd like to go over a few items so you know how to participate in today's event. First of all, I'd like to extend a special thank you to our course director, Eric Rovner, Dr. Eric Rovner, for planning an excellent educational course. We thank you for your dedication and commitment to urologic education. Thank you as well to our faculty for their time, talent, and expertise for today's program. The AUA is accredited by the ACCME and designates these and other activities, live virtual activities and enduring materials for a maximum of two AMA PRA category one credits. Evaluations are very important to us. Course evaluations and CME credit will be administered electronically on the AUA 2021 site immediately following the live program today. As the AUA continues to develop virtual education that meets your needs, we welcome your feedback regarding both the content and format of this activity. Please visit aua2021.org to complete your evaluations and credit claim. All persons in a position to control the content of an AUA educational activity are required to disclose any relevant financial relationships with any commercial interest. Please visit aua2021.org to view faculty, education council, and COI review work group disclosures. The American Urological Association would like to thank AbV, Estellas, Medtronic, and Eurovant Sciences Incorporated for their generous support of this educational program. This activity is meant to be educational in nature and in some instances reflects the opinions of the presenters. The information does not guarantee accuracy of claims submitted. Please verify the accuracy of individual medical claims submitted and please follow individual insurer's rules. It is now my pleasure to introduce to you our course director, Dr. Eric Rovner. He's a professor in the Department of Urology at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. He's the director of the section of Vo Voiding Dysfunction, Female Urology and Urodynamics in the Department of Urology at MUSC. He has a highly specialized clinical practice within urology and sees mostly patients with complex voiding problems, including urinary incontinence, vaginal prolapse, urinary fistulae, and neurogenic bladder dysfunction. I will now turn it over to Dr. Rovner. Please take a moment and look at these learning objectives for the uh, program. They're shown on the screen. The learning objectives can also be found in your annual meeting agenda. And please note that you can also find today's course handouts within the virtual annual meeting agenda. Well, I would like to um, introduce uh, faculty uh, for the course uh, for the next uh, roughly hour and a half. Uh, these are two special individuals within the world of urology uh, and within uh, my own uh, world. Uh, first, I'd like to introduce Dr. Christopher Chapel. He's a consultant urological surgeon at the Sheffield Teaching Hospitals, honorary professor at the University of Sheffield and visiting professor at Sheffield Hallam University. 
is particularly interested in the functional reconstruction of low urinary tract and underlying pharmacologic control mechanisms and provides a tertiary service and lower urinary tract reconstructive surgery. Dr. Chappell trained at the Middlesex Hospital where he completed his doctorate thesis. He continued there and at the Institute of London, I'm sorry, the Institute of Urology in London for his subspecialist training. He is currently Secretary General of the European Association of Urology, having previously been Chairman of the International Relations Committee and the Adjunct Secretary General responsible for education and the Director of the European School of Urology. Uh, Chris is truly a fabulous individual, uh, incredibly intelligent. Uh, I think you will enjoy listening uh, to his lectures. Uh, he is extraordinarily well published. And then our other faculty is Dr. Alan J. Ween. He's the Founders Professor and Eminus Chief of Urology and Director of the Residency Program in Urology at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, where I actually completed my residency under Dr. Ween about 25 years ago. He holds an honorary PhD from the University of Patras, Greece, and was conferred an honorary professorship by the Institute of Urology and the Russian Ministry of Health. His clinical and research interests include the physiology and pharmacology of the lower urinary tract, evaluation and management of urinary incontinence and all types of lower urinary tract dysfunction, including problems with benign prostatic enlargement, as well as evaluation and management of prostate, bladder, and kidney cancers. Uh, these are my disclosures. Um, none are particularly relevant for today. This is the agenda. We hope to get through our entire agenda in about an hour and half hour, an hour and a half to 45 minutes. And we'll have time for questions and answers uh, at the end of the uh, uh, talks. Uh, but we again have a, a live uh, chat session. We'll try to answer questions uh, as they come up if you have any uh, burning questions uh, during uh, the presentations. So I'd like to spend a few minutes talking about patient goals and expectations in uh, drug therapy of overactive bladder. Overactive bladder is a symptom-based diagnosis, as almost everybody on this course uh, would recognize. It's defined as urinary urgency, usually accompanied by frequency and nocturia with or without urgency incontinence in the absence of UTIs or other pathology. That means if you have something that can account for your lower urinary tract symptoms, such as bladder cancer, uh, that is not making the definition of overactive bladder. It's important to recognize that overactive bladder is really a complex uh, condition and the pathophysiology is still not completely understood. Dr. Chappell is going to spend most of his first talk discussing the pathophysiology of overactive bladder. Um, there are a variety of mechanisms uh, underlying overactive bladder, some of which may be myogenic or neurological, may involve the urethelium, some may be even behavioral or some combination of the above. The bottom line is that the pathophysiology, at least in large populations, is not completely understood and we only understand it to a certain degree in individual patients uh, and, and only from as a peripheral, from a peripheral perspective. So when, when, when we talk about goals in treating overactive bladder, specifically pharmacologically treating overactive bladder, the goals really, or the outcomes really depend on who's asking the question, because the question could be asked by the treating physician, could be asked by regulatory bodies such as the FDA, could be asked by industry who wants to get new drugs approved, but, 
but perhaps the perspective that's that's least appreciated is that of the of the patient. That is the one that we actually are are treating. And in fact, we, through through uh, uh, a variety of mechanisms, we actually measure outcomes in overactive bladder. That might mean diaries, looking at incontinence episodes or pads or frequency of micturition over 24 hours, or we might even look at uh, patient report outcome measures such as various questionnaires, especially those promulgated by the ICS and other uh, bodies. But nevertheless, it's the patient that we're most concerned about. It's the patient that we treat. And is, is this what the patient expects? Uh, are they looking at their diaries? Are they looking at their questionnaires? And the obvious answer uh, is no. Um, what, what, what does the patient expect actually? Uh, does the patient expect an improvement in their diaries? Do they expect to be dry? Do they expect to be perfect with respect to frequency and urgency? Do they expect to have uh, uh, minimal uh, cost to their treatment of, of overactive bladder without adverse effects and we expect them, do they expect to be ecstatic uh, and do we expect that to be permanent? Um, the realities, as you'll see over the next hour and a half, is that the drugs that we're going to talk about, by and large, all of the drugs for overactive bladder and the list there is on the left, a low cure rate with modest improvements in urgency and frequency and modest improvements in uh, urinary incontinence episodes. And they all have some uh, adverse uh, uh, effects, uh, although some less than others, and we'll, we'll talk about that. And they have variable costs depending on here in the US insurance coverage and elsewhere in the country, uh, government availability and, and cost. So again, are patients' expectations of overactive bladder resolution of all these symptoms uh, or not? And, and I challenge you uh, to ask your patients uh, what their goals are. And that's the point uh, of this talk. This is a good example of, of the difference between um, uh, what we measure as physicians uh, or what industry measures uh, for regulatory approval this is a, the ABC trial published a number of years ago in New England Journal of Medicine, looking at uh, a Botox uh, versus a variety of different anti-muscarinics in a randomized controlled double blind, double dummy trial. And the details of the trial are not particularly important. Patients were simply randomized uh, to an anti-muscarinic uh, plus a saline injection or Botox uh, plus a placebo oral tablet. And then the primary outcome measure was urgent cotton episodes at six months. The point is not so much who was better than what. The point is, uh, as you'll see on this, uh, this uh, slide taken right out of the New England Journal uh, article, is that uh, the cure rate, if you will, for incontinence on the left-hand column is anticholinergic drug and on the right column is, is uh, uh, Botox. Uh, you can see that the Botox was statistically better than anti-muscarinic, but, but by any measure, those dry rates, if you will, are pretty low uh, with drug rates being between 11 and 13%, depending on what type of incontinence we're looking at, and Botox being between 23 and 27%. We'd say that's, that's a fairly poor uh, uh, outcome uh, for dry, uh, even though Botox did quite better than drug. Uh, what's really surprising here is when you ask the patient uh, whether they were better despite these dry rates, more than half the patients in both arms uh, at month three and month six, as you can see on the slide here, uh, more than half were either very much or much better uh, overall. So uh, maybe patients aren't 
so much looking at dry rates and resolution of all their symptoms. They just want to kind of get better depending on, on what their expectation is uh, and what the treatment is. So physician and patient goals are often not aligned. Patient goals probably have very limited correlation with conventional measures such as diaries of OAB severity improvement. And patient goal achievement, uh, that is whether the patient feels that they're better, doesn't necessarily correlate with objective measures of treatment outcomes uh, in trials of antimuscarinic therapy sort of across the board. So what then is the patient asking for? And, and this is some work done uh, by Linda Brubaker and others, and it has to do with self-assessment goal achievement. And basically is asking the patient what they want from their therapy for overactive bladder. This is work again pioneered by Linda Brubaker and her partners initially at Loyola uh, in Chicago. And she's, she's applied it and, and, and her invest, co-investigators have, have applied it to a number of different conditions, treatments for vaginal prolapse and stress incontinence, uh, even interstitial cystitis, as well as overactive bladder. Um, the bottom line being, if you ask the patient what they want, uh, you, you may get a different uh, success rate uh, than by using conventional measures. And, and truth be told, I'm not sure which is more accurate or which is more important, but an individual practice, uh, when we're out in practice taking care of our patients, I suspect that it's what the patient wants that's most important and not what we want. We did a, we did a study a couple of years ago uh, looking at some of the original Botox uh, uh, data. Uh, this is uh, from 2015, uh, looking at the uh, a subcut of the patient's uh, who participated in the phase three Botox trials for neurogenic detrusor overactivity. Uh, these were all folks who got two or 300 units of Botox. And what we did was we actually asked them, in addition to the usual outcome measures of diaries and things that are required by regulatory authorities, uh, we actually asked them to, to pick their own treatment goals, sort of a, the, a study within the study uh, looking at their own self-assessment. What did they want uh, from uh, Botox? And patients could pick their own goals, which you see circled in red as the variety of uh, choices they were given. And patients could actually choose their own goal as well. But you can see that most patients, at least these patients with neurogenic detrusor overactivity, mostly picked to be dry. Uh, some said just to reduce their incontinence and a variety of other uh, outcome measures. What we learned from the study is A, that patients are quite good at knowing what they want. Uh, and second, uh, that patients are actually uh, quite good at achieving uh, what they want. Uh, but from a, a scientific perspective, what was quite striking uh, is uh, outlined on this slide. And this is uh, looking at, again, patient goal achievement, what the patient decided they wanted to do, uh, looking at uh, the active drug arm, which is the black bars, uh, versus the placebo arm, which is the white bars. And it didn't really matter what outcome the patients chose. They're all across the bottom uh, of the graph here. Uh, the split between uh, active drug, that is Botox, and placebo is strikingly large, much larger uh, than in almost any other overactive bladder trial. And in fact, the split between the uh, patient's achievement of their own goal uh, and, uh, uh, I'm sorry, and 
looking at other objective measures such as pads and, 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 and uh, frequency urgency uh, diaries, the placebo effect was much greater in other outcome measures as opposed to this particular outcome measure. So I, at least for me, this, this taught me that, that what the patients actually want to achieve is probably more important uh, than what we want them to achieve or what regulatory uh, bodies want to achieve. So in summary, OAB is complex. Traditional measures of OAB outcomes such as diaries may not capture important data or data that's relevant uh, to the patient, even when we use patient reported outcome measures. Uh, communication is the key and I encourage you to set realistic expectations for your patients, but more important, understand your patient goals and ask your patient uh, what they want. All right, I wanna briefly uh, move on and, and, and talk very briefly about uh, the OAB uh, guideline, the AUA SUFU OAB guideline, uh, just because we've had a couple of iterations of this guideline over the last few years uh, and some modest changes uh, two years ago in 2019, and because of COVID last year, I want to make sure that we all are on the same page with respect to uh, the AUA SUFU guidelines. So uh, the original uh, OAB guideline came out in, in 2012, and there were 151 articles that were utilized of, of, of reasonable scientific uh, utility uh, to generate a guideline. Then it was updated uh, in 2014 with 70 some odd more articles. And then most recently it was published in 2019, uh, two years ago, uh, where 37 articles were added. Um, the original guideline uh, was sort of an indictment of our overactive bladder literature. Uh, as you recall, uh, statements made in the guidelines uh, uh, consist of uh, standards, which uh, are uh, when, when a, a benefit is much greater than the risk and and uh, the, there's an overwhelming amount of strong uh, scientific literature to back that up. Uh, then there's recommendations, which is again, when the benefits outweigh the risk, but the, the literature is not quite as strong. And then options uh, are uh, when the literature is weak uh, and we can't make a statement uh, particularly about benefits versus risk. And then clinical principles and expert opinions. The point here is, uh, that uh, after looking at the literature in 2012, we could come up with only three standards uh, based on uh, the literature back then, which is sort of an indictment of our own literature, I suppose, if you look at it like that, that we didn't have enough literature to, to support more than three standards. The important here is that 2019 update included uh, all the statements in 2015, which remain unchanged, and I'm going to briefly go through them. Uh, the major changes two years ago included uh, that offering combination therapy in those refractory to monotherapy is fine, with a, uh, which was an option. Uh, utilizing a non-hierarchical approach to treating OAB is fine. That means that patients don't really need to fail everything before moving on to refractory overactive bladder therapies. Remember, guidelines are not a clinical care pathway. Guidelines are simply guidelines. Uh, clinical, clinical care pathways are are moving from A to B to C. Uh, and, and the guidelines uh, uh, intimated in 2019 that in fact, uh, they're not a clinical care pathway and that patients can move along uh, the, path, the, the uh, guidelines uh, without having to go through each of the steps. And then the guidelines in 2019 also added additional treatments now termed fourth line treatments, which we'll talk about in just a moment. 
So the diagnosis of OAB uh, from the 2012 guidelines all the way up to the latest iteration has not changed. Need a careful history, physical exam, and urine analysis. Additional optional procedures include culture, put PBR, dietaries, and symptom questionnaires, but they are not necessary in the majority of patients and unnecessary in the initial evaluation of the uncomplicated patient. You do not need to do cystoscopy, do not need to do urodynamics, and do not need upper tract uh, imaging, uh, including renal and bladder ultrasonography. That's unchanged. And again, uh, provide education to patients regarding overactive bladder should be done in these patients. That's patient handouts, that sort of thing. No treatment remains an acceptable choice for some patients. First-line therapies, first-line treatments have not changed. Uh, that still remains behavioral therapies, including bladder training, uh, pelvic floor muscle training, and fluid management. These may be combined with antimuscarinics, which of course are the second-line treatments. That list uh, of antimuscarinics hasn't really changed, and there's no hierarchy even in 2019. Uh, there is a class warning in frail and elderly and uh, patients with uh, cognitive dysfunction, including dementia. And Dr. Ween will talk much more about that when he covers uh, uh, antimuscarinics monotherapy. Again, extended release formulations should preferentially be used over immediate release formulations and beta-3 agonists became an option in 2015, but again, same caution in frail and elderly uh, patients, perhaps, but for different reasons. Uh, the 2015 guideline uh, defined an adequate trial. An adequate trial of drug therapy is four to eight weeks. An adequate trial of behavioral therapy is eight to 12 weeks. And that's certainly in line with muscle physiology and exercise physiology, where uh, uh, the exercise physiologists would tell you that, that uh, uh, optimal uh, muscle uh, strength improvement and stamina improvement uh, would be at eight to 12 weeks. So we shouldn't give up on pelvic floor exercises after a few weeks uh, when, when there's no effect. And we should uh, have patients continue these therapies for eight to 12 weeks. Third line therapies remain sacral neuromodulation, which is a, a recommendation. Uh, PTNS, uh, which became a recommendation in 2015, and then onobotulinum toxin or Botox uh, became a standard in 2015, again, for the carefully selected patient. Fourth line treatments were added in 2019. This includes indwelling catheters. These were not recommended as an initial management strategy and should be obviously used as a last resort in selected patients. And of course, augmentation cystoplasty is also a fourth line treatment for refractory, for truly refractory overactive bladder for those patients who failed uh, third line therapy. This is the uh, algorithm uh, for the uh, management of non-neurogenic overactive bladder in adults. This is the 2019 algorithm. It's, it's uh, uh, in the materials uh, in, in your handout. I'm probably too dense to go in uh, right now. I want to thank you for your time and attention, and I'm going to move on to the meat of the course. Uh, first will be uh, uh, Professor Chapel discussing the principles of physiology and pharmacology of overactive bladder. Thank you, Chris, so much for joining the faculty again this year. And again, I look forward to hearing from you. I learn every time I hear your lectures. Thank you. Thanks very much, Eric. I'm very grateful to you and honored by the invitation to join both yourself and Professor Ween. And certainly I also like to acknowledge that Alan was a major mentor to me over the years. And I first met him when I visited and met you 30 years ago in Philadelphia when I was a chief resident. So basically, I think my disclosures are on the web and they were submitted. 
I've worked extensively with a number of the compounds because my interest over the years has been related to functional urology. And my old chief, Turner Warwick, always used to say that the bladder is an unreliable witness. I wondered, there we go. Because symptoms are not disease specific, patients are often embarrassed by their symptoms and always don't necessarily understand the nature of the symptoms. And of course, as clinicians, we all interpret symptoms and take a history in different ways and come with our own views relating to the underlying problem and how to manage it best. Of course, we love labels in urology, like in all areas of medicine. And we shouldn't forget that overactive bladder, just like BPH, is a label. It's a non-specific symptom complex. It's not a condition. And it's for that reason that Paul Abrams many years ago introduced the term LUTs or low urinary tract symptoms. And of course, if we're looking at the spectrum of low urinary tract symptoms, we're dealing with the storage symptoms, which are the basis for overactive bladder, of course, the voiding symptoms and the post-mictrician symptoms. And although we often think of overactive bladder, and I'll come to this later, as being synonymous with detrusor overactivity. Of course, you can have overactive bladder symptoms if you've got an underactive bladder with a large post-voiding residual. So it's those storage symptoms that we're actually concentrating on this evening. The next point is that symptoms are neither gender nor condition specific. And so you can see this slide here, from Irwin going back 15 or 16 years, where you can see that very clearly the storage symptoms, avoiding symptoms and the post-mictrician symptoms are, have a very similar distribution in both men and women. You can see men in yellow, women in blue. So very clearly there's differences in anatomy and conditions and clearly the symptoms don't relate therefore to any underlying condition necessarily. So overactive bladder, is an empirical diagnosis. Of course, as we've heard from the excellent introduction from Dr. Rovner, we're talking about symptoms, physical findings, and the various other assessments. And ultimately, we shouldn't forget, although it's difficult to quantify, that the pivotal basis for overactive bladder is urgency, a compelling desire to pass urine, which is difficult to defer. And if you, when you've got to go, you've got to go, then you have a reduced intervoid interval. You produce less urine each time you go because you're going more often. And of course, in women in a third of cases, less common, of course, in men, unless they've had a radical prostatectomy, you've got incontinence in a third of patients. And of course, if you have nocturia, that's sleep disturbing voiding, that's frequency at nighttime. And we'll hear more about that later from Dr. Rovner. Now, overactive bladder, of course, is more troublesome in terms of incontinence in women, but with aging, you can see in men, you're getting a higher prevalence of storage symptoms with increasing age. And let's not forget the reason why most men come to see a urologist initially is the storage symptoms. Retention is relatively uncommon. So it's the OAB component of so-called BPH, which is one of the most troublesome symptoms. An urgency, of course, is a sensation very clearly. 
Now, the reason we talk about urgency and then urgent continence is because, quite rightly, the FDA has pointed out until recently, it's been very difficult to actually quantify urgency because it's a sensation. So it's difficult to define, difficult to explain to others. And it's quite distinct from normal urge. And that's why you see a disparity across the world with the use of terminology. So the ICS says urgency incontinence because it follows urgency. And of course, if we're talking about symptoms, we shouldn't forget that we still don't understand exactly the basis for some of the symptoms because they're perceived in the higher centers in the limbic system. So, of course, you have a disparity here between the overactive bladder symptom complex, where you've got urgency, urgency incontinence in a proportion, and frequency in nocturia, and the bladder pain syndrome, or so-called interstitial cystitis, or painful bladder syndrome, where pain is a predominant feature. Another sensation, of course. We should also remember that there is an overlap with other important physiological processes. So you can see, and this is the, the, the work that came out a number of years ago from Ray Rosen, you can see that there's a clear correlation between uh, erectile dysfunction uh, and functional disorders relating to uh, intercourse and increasing age, but also increasing symptoms. So lonely tract symptoms interfere with sexual function as well. So just to summarize what I was saying about labels, if you take a male patient, whilst we like talking about BPH, it is a histological problem, which by the age of 70 to 80 affects 80% 80 of men. Half of those will have enlargement of the prostate and half of the large ones, in other words, a quarter, will actually have obstruction. But of course you have lonely tract symptoms, which can be due to bladder underactivity or bladder overactivity, or of course, relating uh, to obstruction. And of course, around every prostate in a patient, you have a man. So you may have renal dysfunction, neurological disorders as yet undescribed in many patients, cardiac disorders with increased fluid production, fluid retention can occur, and of course, uh, fluid, increased fluid production at nighttime because when people lie flat, the uh, tension of fluid comes out. And of course, pituitary disorders, uh, diabetes and so on, which can be affecting it and a lack of pituitary hormone. In women, of course, you're dealing with a combination of other factors. They haven't got a prostate, but they may have hypermobility of the pelvic floor. There could be, uh, therefore, stress incontinence as well as urgency incontinence, or they could be sensory disorders, which are more common in women than men. So you can see, again, you have the same combination of additional factors contributing to the picture in women as in man. So the controversy, the first controversy really is, whilst it's easy to explain to a patient what overactive bladder is, it can be misunderstood as a diagnosis and as a condition. And it shouldn't be because as Dr. Rovner mentioned, we have to think of what the patient is experiencing and what they hope to achieve from treatment. And we have to realize that it is a basket diagnosis which incorporates a whole spectrum of different conditions. 
can we actually take a symptomatic assessment any further? Well, let's think about it. Symptom scores are very useful to some extent, but they are an objective assessment of subjective parameters. Are there two types of afferent pathology, therefore, looking at the analogy of overactive bladder and bladder pain syndrome? One affecting pain and one causing urgency and the overactive bladder symptom complex and potentially bladder overactivity. Now, of course, this brings us on to pressure flow urodynamics. And the reason I've put up this cartoon is because it is absolutely essential that urodynamics is carried out with properly calibrated machinery by somebody who knows how to do it and can pick up the artifacts. Because otherwise, it's bad data in, wrong diagnosis out. At the end of the day, urodynamics, pressure flow urodynamics, is the subjective interpretation by the person who's carrying out the study of objective parameters. So if you like, the other way around from symptom assessment. So conventional urodynamics we're all familiar with, it's subtracted abdominal subtraction away from the uh, total bladder pressure. And of course, if you use contrast, you have video urodynamics, very helpful in women where you're dealing with differentiating mixed incontinence. And of course, it's called video because of from the Latin video, videre to see, you can see with the contrast. Urodynamics, of course, it's essential to have a cough test every minute or so to check you've got good subtraction. And here you can see a typical picture of bladder overactivity to trusor instability. And you can see avoiding here off an unstable contraction. So the next controversy is, really, if one's dealing with this, what are we talking about from a functional standpoint? What are we measuring with urodynamic assessment? If you've got overactive bladder symptom complex, it's based on urgency. And if you've got detrusor overactivity, it's using a defined provocation test to show if there is an overactive pressure rise in a bladder in a patient where you know there's neurological disease, when it's called neurogenic, and in a patient where you don't know that, where it's idiopathic. But of course, they may have neurological disorders which you haven't picked up and which are developing over the course of time. If you look at this data from Bristol, from Paul Abraham's unit, you can see that there is a disparity between overactive bladder symptom complex and bladder overactivity. On the right-hand side, you can see so-called OAB dry, where the patients are continent, and on the left, OAB wet. And in the pinkish color, you can see that in OAB dry, only 44% of women have bladder overactivity. In men, it's, 50, it's 66% because of the stronger outlet, probably, and because of the influence of obstruction, which seems to correlate with overactive bladder. And there are various theories for that relating to uh, denervation and so on. On the left-hand side, you can see OAB wet. 58% of women have bladder overactivity and 90% of men. So what definition are we using? People have also come up with uh, ambulatory urodynamics, but that's never been defined. It's poorly carried out because difficult to carry out. If you're walking around with catheters in, they slip out and it's difficult to get good control of the data. And 
about 80% of normal people have it, uh, involuntary detrusive contractions on ambulatory urodynamics. So if you're coming on to bladder overactivity, should we be focusing on the muscle? After all, we always hear about the influence of acetylcholine and in a muscle strip experiment, you can contract the bladder with acetylcholine and you can block it with an anti-muscarinic. So is the target the muscle or the sensory mechanisms? And of course, people always recognize we're using anti-muscarics. So it stands to reason you're acting on the muscle, aren't you? But are you? At the end of the day, we're probably acting on sensory mechanisms. And this is now clearly established in the literature. After all, urgency is a sensation, isn't it? It's not perceived in the bladder, in the muscle, it's perceived in the brain. There's also cross innovation between the rectum and the bladder, and that's why something affecting the rectum will often cause bladder overactive symptoms, and something causing overactivity in the bladder will affect the rectum. And you can see that if you look at this in clinical studies, you can see the two interact with each other. So constipation can affect bladder function and a urinary infection can affect rectal function, for instance. Are there micromotions? This is looked at by Bill Coulsert many years ago, but to be honest, there is no evidence for that. The suggestion was that there were pacemakers in the bladder, but the jury's still out on this one. This is an important slide because you need to realize that the bladder urethelium has a metabolic rate four times that of the detrusor muscle. And you also have these interstitial cells, which are controlled by acetylcholine. They're like the interstitial cells seen, the interstitial cells of Cajal seen in the gut. They've only been really recognized over the last 15 years. And of course, there are lots of sensory nerves in the suburethelial plexus. Of course, you need to have a functioning detrusor, but you mustn't forget that if you stretch the urethelium, get non-neuronal release of neurotransmitters. So if you stretch the urethelium, you can release acetylcholine, nitric oxide, which is a very potent relaxant of the bladder. We all know clot retention. Clot retention is where you get blood clot in the bladder. It's not true retention, it's intense spasm in the bladder. And that's because oxyhemoglobin blood clot is the best scavenger for nitric oxide. You wash it out and that terrible sensation the patient's getting goes away. Of course, you need a functioning detrusor. Otherwise, you have an underactive bladder, it won't contract and you're in retention. But don't forget the suburethelial plexus where the sensory nerves are. And note that there are sensory nerves here with have got cholinergic receptors on. And it's also probably the target for the beta-3 agonists. So there is a dis distinct sensory mechanism which is important. And you can see that as one looks at this cartoon, that very clearly one's got to realize that there are cholinergic receptors everywhere, not just on the muscle. So anticholinergics, although they will inhibit detrusor function, don't necessarily act primarily by doing that. It's a, it's a downside, if you like. It's a bystander effect. And you could say the same for botulinum toxin as well. We'll come to that. These are the interstitial cells which are contracted by acetylcholine and they're the mechanisms by which the muscle communicates with the epithelium. So it's too limiting just to focus on the peripheral system. We ought to think about the central nervous system. Another chink 
of information is based on, and what you might wonder why I'm putting up a slide talking about chili. If you use capsaicin or toxin, which target sensory nerves, if you put these agents into the bladder, you can cause retention for up to six months. And they don't touch the motor side, just the sensory side. So whilst you're sitting there, there are impulses going up to your brain via the periductal gray matter, reaching the limbic system. And after all, if people have exams, they get anxious and they get frequency, for instance. Frontal strokes cause incontinence. And of course, with aging, we're probably all of us losing some of the cortical control of our bladders. Ultimately, you've got these impulses going up to the higher centers and you've got the Pontine Mictrician Center, which is being inhibited by them because the PMC, all the time that you're sitting there, is trying to contract your bladder. When it's socially convenient in a normal situation, permission is given to void and you empty the bladder. But it's loss of that normal control mechanism that leads to the urgency that we sometimes experience, and which I'm experiencing more as I get older, the so-called key in the door syndrome. And you can certainly see on functional MRI, which isn't a very physiological test lying flat in an MR scanner, that you can see the higher centers light up as your bladder fills. So the controversy is, what is the target of treatment? We'll hear more about this later from Dr. Wien. Is it the central nervous system? Is it the detrusor muscle? Is it the urethelium or the suburethelial interstitial cells and nerve fibers? The trouble with drugs on the central nervous system is that they have a lot of side effects. And we all know that. And so that's never proved to be a very fruitful uh, source of treatment. Of course, we've got effects on the mucosa. Uh, and if one's looking at the mucosal component, really nothing has been come to the fore recently, apart from probably botulinum toxin, which you instill directly into there. Many years ago, we did use phenol until it caused fistulae. It also was very effective. And more recently, I've seen some work using a bovi type approach to diathermy the trigone, which is producing positive effects. Certainly, if you look at mucosal signaling, none of these mechanisms, which of all of them have been looked at apart from botulinum toxin, have until recently proven to be effective. Although there is ongoing work at the moment looking at some of these mechanisms and time will tell whether they come to fruition. The pathophysiology of urgency, therefore, is bladder distension, leads to sensory feedback, uh, the non-neuronal release I mentioned, which then feeds back up to the brain. The release of nitric oxide counteracts that by relaxing the detrusor muscle, and of course acetylcholine may also have an influence there in terms of producing an effect to augment contraction of the bladder. If one's looking then at the myocyte signaling, then certainly if one's looking at the muscle, then there's no doubt that you can cause retention by inhibiting acetylcholine. And of course, that's a downside with botulinum toxin, another bystander effect. But I would suggest to you the sensory mechanisms are more relevant. The major problem is we don't have any good models, animal models at present. And I would honestly say to you, I don't think any of the drugs we use at the moment have come primarily out of any of these animal models because they're non-physiological. So how does sacral neuromodulation work then? 
it clearly can't be working directly on the detrusor muscle. You can see it's working on the spinal afferents. So is posterior tibial nerve stimulation, of course. It goes nowhere near the, the detrusor muscle. And this is work from our lab, looking at botulinum toxin, looking at a live mouse model, and you can see the reduction in sensory impulses using botulinum toxin. Indeed, many years ago, the phase two data with botulinum toxin that Roger Domokarski reported showed that at about 150 units, you found with botulinum toxin the maximum effect, and beyond that, you just got more retention. So beta-3 agonists the same, although they're said to relax the bladder, they don't lead to increased retention. You don't get increased uh, voided volumes, but we'll hear more about that later from Dr. Wien. What about biomarkers? Could we use biomarkers to actually help us? I'm afraid there aren't any that are effective. If you look at bladder wall thickness, you're dealing with millimeters. The shrink study was proved very ineffective, which looked at that. Nerve growth factor has been suggested, but until they found that the assay used didn't actually measure it, and that whole literature has disappeared. So we do need candidates to look at what we may use to define the problem. But at present, we don't have any. We're learner drivers in the field still. We think we know it all. We like to think we know it all, but we're just learning. And I hope you don't feel like me, but I feel we have to feel a bit like this at times. Thank you very much. Can everybody hear? Hopefully. Yes. Uh, and today, as you can see, we're going to concentrate mostly on group one because that's really all that we have pharmacologically. Under possible new mechanisms in the second talk, we'll concentrate on some possible mechanisms further up the neural axis. So the ideal drug is going to block urgency. It's going to block detrusor overactivity where it exists. It's not going to affect voluntary voiding. It's going to have minimal adverse events and no safety issues. And the key always is uroselectivity. We need to find a drug that affects the bladder or possibly the urethra without affecting significantly any other organ or any other function anywhere else, a concept first promoted by Carl Eric Anderson with respect actually to alpha blockers. 
little problem with the advance here. So the treatment goals, as Eric mentioned, are symptom relief and symptom resolution, but we don't cure anyone with overactive bladder. So a realistic goal is symptom improvement. And in order to get the optimal result, you have to explain initially what are realistic expectations and goals for the patients to achieve. These are the metrics that you'll see in drug studies, the easiest to measure because it's the most objective thing that we see is urgency and continence episodes. Volume voided is also objective, but you'll see the differences in volume voided are very small. We can measure urgency, we can measure frequency, we can measure nocturia, we can measure quality of life with various metrics. What about behavioral therapy? So let's start with that. These are the various spheres that behavioral therapy includes. It was mentioned by Eric. I think that no matter what type of treatment you use for overactive bladder, you need to incorporate behavioral modifications and behavioral modifications include everything on this wheel. It's particularly important are learning how to do pelvic floor exercises to specifically contract the muscles that surround the urethra and to use those to contract them rapidly and frequently so-called quick flicks to abort the sensation of urgency when it occurs. It's worthwhile to learn behavioral therapy. I think that just talking to the patient about behavioral therapy really constitutes a fairly large part of the placebo effect. It's important to remember that if you combine behavioral therapy and drug therapy, either use them first initially or add one to the other, that you will get a better result than either alone in both men and women. We've been quoting the women's study for a long time. It took actually another 20 years to produce a paper that proved that in men as well. So behavioral therapy, the addition from the, a, from the EAU guidelines to the AUA guidelines, caffeine reduction can reduce the symptoms of frequency and urgency. The LE means level of evidence. Reduction of fluid intake by 25% can reduce OAB symptoms, but not urinary incontinence. Obesity is a risk factor in women for urinary incontinence but the relationship to other OAB symptoms is unclear and there's very weak evidence for smoking sensation. So let's tackle the anti-muscarinics. Let's remember first, how do these work? Well, this is a great quote that I think explains it all. As you can see, this is a 15 year old paper. The available data do not support the conclusion that anti-muscarinic drugs at the doses we use exert their therapeutic action by inhibiting detrusor contractility. They suggest effects on variables associated with sensation. 
in the usual doses, antimuscarinics do not affect emptying in patients with overactive bladder. In higher dosages, they can produce retention. And in the overactive bladder patient in whom retention is not a goal, they act during filling and storage and not emptying. Think about it. What do they affect? They affect urgency. Where does urgency occur? In filling and storage, not in emptying. So this is a great diagram that shows the therapeutic window for overactive bladder with antimuscarinics. It's due to the effect on afferrin activity. And when you begin to increase the doses out of the ranges that we ordinarily use, you begin to affect voiding contraction. These are the approved anti-muscarinics and also agents that have a, another action in the laboratory, oxybutynin and propivirine. A 1A rating by the International Continent Society means that there have been randomized double-blind studies that prove the efficacy of these agents. This is a Japanese drug that may come to the US. This is a drug that's used in Europe that may come to the US. So I've condensed the AUA SUFU guidelines from the 2019 document that Eric talked about. So let me just review these briefly. Yep, behavioral therapy is first line therapy. I'll be honest and tell you that I always use first behavioral therapy plus drug treatment. I think that honestly, it doesn't matter whether you use an anti-muscarinic or beta-3 agonist, you need to be careful in the elderly with an anti-muscarinic for reasons that you'll hear shortly. Extended release preparations are preferred over immediate release. They seem to have fewer side effects. You can use transdermal oxybutynin. It does have skin reactions. If the first drug that you use inadequately controls the symptoms or has unacceptable adverse events, you can modify the dose of either an anti-muscarinic or beta-3 agonist, or you can combine the two. No anti-muscarinics and narrow angle glaucoma unless approved by the ophthalmologist. Use with caution in patients that have gastric emptying, obviously urinary retention. Before abandoning the anti-muscarinic group, be sure that you manage the patient's constipation to take away one source of annoyance. Use caution with antimuscarinics when other medications the patient is on have antimuscarinic properties. Use caution with both categories of drugs in frail patients. And instructions to the primary care provider who really should be able to do all of these dots. If the patient re proves refractory to behavioral modification and oral drug therapy, they really need to be evaluated by a specialist if they desire further treatment. They may not. Now, how do you compare results from one to another? Well, first rule, be very careful. Compare only apples to apples, oranges to oranges. Remember that medians are different from means. So you can't compare medians to means. For whatever reason, the median changes for overactive bladder drugs are generally higher than the mean changes. Don't mix the two. That's why I've always preferred comparing percents and using a drug placebo ratio, no matter whether I'm talking about means or medians. If you look at median results for antimuscarinics in both men and women, 
these are the general figures that you get. Urge urinary incontinence reduction, placebo, with a drug placebo ratio about this. Urgency reduction in terms of episodes, the numbers, drug placebo ratio somewhere here. Reduction of frequency during the day, lower, you don't get much of a bang for your buck, drug placebo ratio. And basically quality of life increases, any metrics that you use will go up for both drug and placebo. The reported adverse events of antimuscarinics, I think you're familiar with. Uh, dry mouth and constipation are the two. There was a flurry of activity about possible cardiac side effects, not in the clinical doses that we used. And as you'll hear, there's a big row about cognitive effects, cognitive decline uh, with antimuscarinics, especially in patients who are on other anti-muscarinics. These are two main articles that look at the effect of anticholinergics on cognitive ability, significant decline in the mini mental status examination after two years of use, greatest risk for dementia and Alzheimer's in those with the greatest anticholinergic dose in a study of daily dose and the onset of both conditions. So a few years ago, it was thought that, wow, when this article came out in 2016 in JAMA Neurology, thus the use of anticholinergic medication among older adults should likely be discouraged if alternate therapies are available. It was thought to be curtains. And this was a big subject for about two years. And I think anticholinergic, anti-muscarinic activity did decrease, but that seems to be on the wane somewhat, although it still is a very active topic for discussion. You have to remember that most articles support this, but not all of them. The supportive articles cite not the individual drugs, but the total anti-muscarinic load. Long-term follow-up in this area of those only on overactive bladder drugs or adding overactive bladder drugs is lacking or non-existent, especially on those drugs with limited blood-brain barrier penetration or the drugs that gain access to, through the blood-brain barrier and then are pumped out by PGP substrates. So the EAU guidelines, EAU sort of tells it like it is in its guidelines, offer anti-muscarinic drugs to patients with urge urinary incontinence who have failed behavioral modification. Consider extended release, same as the AUA. If a treatment proves ineffective, consider dose escalation or offering an alternative and encourage an early review of efficacy and anti-adverse events, usually about one month. I think that this is very important. This is the EAU guidelines 2021. No anticholinergic drug is clearly superior to another for cure or improvement of OAB slash urinary incontinence. Higher doses, more effective, higher side effects. Once daily doses associated with lower risk of adverse events. Most patients will stop within the first three months. We'll talk about why in a minute. Dose escalation is appropriate if you don't achieve the effect with the initial dose, although higher doses, higher adverse events. 
So how do we compare one to another? Well, I think that the only level playing field is to take the measures from the FDA approved labeling and product information. In other words, everyone has to submit phase three data to the FDA. Why not take that as the level playing field? No one can play games with those. The FDA allows frequency, urgency, urinary incontinence episodes, volume voided, but they don't allow urgency in the product information. And the FDA generally uses means and not medians. So let's just take two examples, not because we're trying to elevate or criticize these two, but these were the two most recently revised guidelines, solifenacin and fesoteridine. So instead of providing a fixed number of urinary incontinence episodes per 24 hours, reflecting a mean or median effect, let's provide an estimate that can be interpreted relative to baseline. I like percentage decrease, and that way I can compare drug and placebo results. I can concoct a ratio to drug and placebo, which gives a relative magnitude of the effect of one compared with the other. So let's look at this. Here's incontinence episodes looking at Soli 5 and FESO 4 compared to placebo and Soli 10 and FESO 8 compared to placebo. This is mean, okay? Lower than the medians you saw before. Soli 5, 54% reduction, placebo 30. FESO 4, 54 and 32. Soli 10, wow, wait a minute, not much of a difference between that and Soli 5, this is a fesoteridine, a little more difference, et cetera. Now, what's the actual drug effect here? Is it 54%? No. The actual drug effect is the difference between the drug and placebo. So the actual drug effect is only 24%. You know, here it's 20% and so on. But the placebo effect is important because you cannot separate that from the actual drug effect totally. This is the drug placebo ratio for solifenacin and for fesoteridine, not very different. That's why I believe that the EAU statement about no anti-muscarinic is clearly superior to another in terms of efficacy is true. Let's digress for a minute and talk about the placebo effect. These are figures from reviews for overactive bladder drugs. 56% symptomatic improvement versus 41% placebo. This is a Cochrane review. This is another review, urgency incontinence episodes per day, 36.7% placebo. This is just looking at placebo effects, frequency 11.9, voided volume, which is the least, only 7%. These are more overactive bladder effects for placebo. This was for stress incontinence. You can see it's the same story there. 53% drug effect for duloxetine, 33% placebo. Urgency urinary incontinence episodes. This is anti-muscarinics. This is placebo. What's the actual drug effect? Well, if you take the lower estimates, 45 minus 32 or 13. If you take the upper estimates, well, how about that? It's the same, 77 minus 64. 13%. This is the maximum voided volume. As you can see, a fairly large difference, but you'll see with the anti-muscarinics, you're only talking about less than half an ounce. 
Now, people say, well, is the placebo effect sustained? The prevailing opinion is no, that's not true. Consider all the continuation studies that have been done with drugs that have a favorable effect on overactive bladder, the patients who want to stay on the drug for a year. At the end of that one year, if the placebo effect failed, then the effect should fail. In other words, if the initial efficacy is X and the placebo is Y, then over time, if the placebo effect is not sustained, the efficacy should drop in those who elect to continue the drug to X minus Y. Guess what? It doesn't. So is this due to the study effect, repeated visits, encouragement, attention? Well, my attitude is if the positive result persists, do we really care? I mean, if the patient gets better, I honestly don't care. But here's a good ethical question. The placebo effect constitutes a considerable portion of a drug's efficacy, with some drugs more than others and for some effect more than others. Why not take advantage of this? I think it's an ethics debate, maybe for the AUA for 2022. So let's go back to the elderly with anti-muscarinic drugs. They're effective. In older women, at least, the cognitive impact of drugs is, is cumulative and increases with the length of exposure. So you need to consider the total anticholinergic load. Oxybutynin is actually the only individual drug cited by the EAUA. And in fact, they say that in short-term studies in elderly women, that these drugs have not been shown to cause cognitive dysfunction. So their recommendations assess the anticholinergic burden and associated comorbidities and consider whether you want to add another anti-muscarinic drug. Can you give anti-muscarinics in men? Absolutely, because as Chris mentioned, they can significantly improve the overactive bladder symptoms in men, which are often the presenting complaint. Now, yes, they can be associated with increased post-void residual, but this is rare if you start with a post-void residual of less than 150. The combination of anti-muscarinics and an alpha blocker is more effective than reducing the, in reducing the symptoms of overactive bladder and increasing quality of life than either the alpha blocker or the placebo alone. What about neurogenic patients? The anti-muscarinics work just as well in neurogenic patients as first-line medical treatment. And here's a strong recommendation from the EAU. This is 2020 because the neurourology recommendations for 2021 haven't come out yet. Well, what's the problem with anti-muscarinics? Wow, look at the discontinuation rates for all of these agents. Why? Patients perceive that the combination of lack of efficacy, adverse events, and the cost of some of the agents is just prohibitive. In other words, it's not worth taking the medication. The discontinuation rate is lower with extended release preparations and in women, it's higher in those patients that have unreal expectations and in younger patients. Let's go to the beta-3 agonists. <clears throat> when most evaluations were done, the only drug possible was Mirabegron. That got a 1A rating from the EAU for LUTs, for OAB, and for detrusor overactivity. What kind of numbers do we have? Well, 
This is from the prescribing information submitted to the FDA for Mirabegron. This is incontinence episodes decrease, mean, 50 milligrams, 25 milligrams. Here's one study that had both 25 and 50. So let's just look at 50, the higher dose. 55% Mirabegron, 44% placebo. What's the drug effect? Is it 55% or is it 11%, the difference between placebo and drug? Here's 53 and 37, okay, that's 16%. And here's a study, the only study that looked at both doses and a placebo. And you can see as far as incontinence episodes, not much of a difference between the higher dose and the lower dose. So the percent reduction in incontinence episodes, if basically this is the drug, this is the placebo, you look at these numbers and you say, well, if you're looking at what's present in the FDA filings is beta-3, at least reflected by mirabegron, as good as anticholinergic or incontinence episodes. You be the judge. So this is the decrease in incontinence episodes looking at the drug placebo ratios just taken from the numbers in the PI that was presented to the FDA, the two anti-muscarinics and the beta-3 agonist. So not much difference, but certainly if you look at these numbers, some difference. Now, I think the authors who put out this paper really did us a service because they showed what happens in real honest to goodness practice in spite of what's been submitted to the FDA, et cetera. So congratulations, Chris and your co-authors for doing this. This is a busy slide, but let me take you through this. This is incontinence per day. Let's just do this one. This is the percent decrease for placebo for Mirabegron 25, for Mirabegron 50, for Solifenacin 5, and for Tolteridine extended release. Well, there's not much of a difference there, but far less than you would expect from looking at figures elsewhere. And if you look at the difference between drug and placebo, what's the drug effect? Let's take the best one, 57, placebo 41. So what's the drug effect here, 57? or 16%, while it's really the difference between drug and placebo. And if you look through the rest of this, you'll find that the same is true for the parameters of urgency, for volume voided and nocturia. Volume voided is a little different because that's actually, in addition to urgency and continence episodes, the most objective parameter of all. The side effects from that study, by the way, the only difference between the drugs basically was really dry mouth. There wasn't much of a difference in constipation between the beta-3 agonist and the anti-muscarinics. Persistence with Mirabegron is better than the anti-muscarinics, probably because it has less side effects in terms of dry mouth. Um, some would say, well, maybe it's because of the combination of efficacy and less side effects. That may be, but you can still, it's not anything to cheer about, even though it is better than the anti-muscarinics. Here are the adverse events of Mirabegron. Not much different for, from placebo, except for tachycardia 1.6 for the middle dose. The middle dose is very peculiar. This number here is why 
the subject of hypertension is brought up in the product insert. 11.3 versus placebo, however, for the higher dose of Mirabetric, it was exactly the same as placebo. So I don't know what this is, what caused this. It'll be interesting to see whether post-marketing surveillance really re reveals a problem with Mirabetric and a problem specifically with the middle dose and not with the high dose. Is Mirabegron safe in the elderly? These articles would say yes, and I think it is. And this is the EAU pronouncement. It is efficacious and safe in the elderly. And again, this statement by the EAU, these drugs don't cause cognitive dysfunction in the elderly in at least short-term study. They're talking about three-month studies. EAU, Mirabegron is better than placebo and as efficacious as anti-muscarinics. If you look at the Chapel et al. study in real practice, it is. If you look at the numbers and the PI presented to the FDA, you can use your own judgment with that. Adverse events are similar to placebo. Uh, yes, except that one red herring with hypertension in the middle dose group. Patients inadequately treated with the low dose of Soli may benefit more from adding Mirabegron than escalating the dose of Solifenacin because adding Mirabegron doesn't give you a bump and dry mouth. Adding another dose of Solifenacin to 10 does. Offer either one of these to adults with urgency urinary incontinence who have failed treatment. Well, what about the latest newcomer, Vibegron, another selective beta-3 agonist, effective in animals, also effective in humans? It likes the animal slide. This is the article from the Journal of Urology published at the end of last year. This basically looks at mixturitions per day. This is placebo. This is comparator tolteridine. And this is Vibegron. This is for urge incontinence episodes or should be urgency incontinence episodes. Placebo, tolteridine, Vibegron. So as you can see, it is somewhat better than extended release tolteridine, but not by much. And both drugs are better than placebo. What's the drug effect here? Is it this or is it the difference between this and this? Well, that's a good subject to ponder after this session. These are just other graphs showing other parameters. This is urgency episodes and you can see there's a difference, but the two drugs are really quite close. Um, this is volume voided. There is a big difference. Uh, you don't get much of a bump with volume voided with a placebo. Um, and basically, you know, to remember that the biggest objective difference is always going to be with volume voided. These are the side effects from Vibegron. And basically, you'll see that they're really no difference from placebo. I've started the hypertension and the increased um, systolic blood or average blood pressure. And basically, they're no different um, and they're no problems with tachycardia. It's interesting, these are the slides that were shown originally in 2019 um, about Vibegron. And if you calculate basically 
the means and you look at the percent reductions, this is Vibegron, this is Tolteridine, this is placebo. Um, if you look at the drug placebo ratio, um, it's actually pretty good. This is daily urgency episodes, um, the same sort of different, this is percentage reduction. And this is the drug placebo ratio. This is tolteridine, very close. These are daily micturitions. Um, the difference, 11%, 15%, but not a lot of difference. You never see much of a difference in daily micturitions. Volume voided, well, there's actually a big percent increase difference, but what are you really getting? Well, this is what you're getting, an increase of less than an ounce with both drugs and a very essentially a zero increase with placebo. And again, just to review the mean changes from Vibegron, um, micturitions, urgency incontinence episodes versus placebo and drug placebo ratios seems to work pretty well. It would be interesting in five years to do a study on usage in the community, just like Chris and his coworkers did for Mirabegron, Solifenacin, and Tolteridine. Uh, basically, this is what every company does once their drug is approved. In an extension study, the ones who elected to continue, the efficacy did not decrease. In other words, the placebo effect did not disappear. It's okay in the elderly and the quality of life does in fact go up. No difference in results by age. You don't have to adjust the dosage for renal impairment as long as the GFR is over 15. You don't have to do it for mild or moderate liver impairment. You do for severe. There are no drug-drug interactions except for digoxin, and there's no induction or inhibitory effects on the cytochrome P450 system. You can use beta agonists in men, the same as you can use anti-muscarinics. And some believe that they're actually safer to use because there really should be no risk of urinary retention uh, with these drugs. And of course, this recommendation was made only with respect to Mirabegron. So perhaps in 2022, they'll look at Vibegron in that respect as well. What about alpha agonists for overactive bladder? Well. As you know, the currently used ones are considered effective for voiding symptoms, but are they effective for storage symptoms? Basically, in the incontinence book, the International Consultation on Incontinence, uh, the statement is made that yes, they are considered useful for storage and voiding symptoms, but there's no evidence that they're useful just in patients with storage symptoms alone, the alpha blockers, and in women, they're not useful for that either. In the alpha blockers, these are the numbers that were cited by the EAU, typically reduce the IPSS by 30 to 40%, increase flow rates. They can reduce both storage and voiding symptoms. What about the phosphodiesterase inhibitors? Well, the phosphodiesterase inhibitors improve not only sexual function, but the IPSS. They don't improve flow rate. The only one that's been approved in the US for that is Tadalafil. So the recommendation from the EAU though is use PDE5 inhibitors in men with moderate to severe lower urinary tract symptoms with or without erectile dysfunction. And they cite studies in the statements supporting this 
showing that the combination with alpha blockers improves the IPSS over just the alpha blockers alone or the PDE5 inhibitors alone. There's no reason why these PDE5 inhibitors should act any differently than Tadalafil, but in the US, only Tadalafil is approved for use in BPH. If anyone can answer this question, I will assure you, you will win a prize at the AUA and EAU both next year. Estrogens, systemic estrogen actually results in worse incontinence than placebo. There's some evidence that local estrogen improves incontinence and that local estrogen improves frequency and urgency as well in women with the genitourinary symptom of menopause. So the recommendation from the EAU offer vaginal estrogen to these women with lower urinary tract symptoms and associated GSM. So what about the oral drugs? Well, you can cite efficacy in different ways, depending on what you want to prove. You know, I think the most realistic way is to look at percent reduction or percent increase and look at the difference between drug and placebo. What the patient actually experiences though is the drug plus placebo effect. Make sure you're comparing apples to apples. The results are all over the board for efficacy, which is why it's hard to separate and say this drug is better than another. Taking the results from the product information approved by the FDA for comparison seems to be a fair way of leveling the playing field. For each type of drug though, there seems to be a ceiling effect, you know, and it's certainly not a perfect one, but that's certainly the rationale for combining different types with different mechanisms of action. And if you look at the studies, it seems like the placebo effects may actually change more than the total drug effects from study to study. Thanks so much. Sorry to go over time. Thank you very much. I'll take up the baton now. And certainly you can see from the excellent presentations from Dr. Rovner and Dr. Wien that what we're dealing with is what the patient thinks best. And clearly the data using the objective measures isn't quite as good as we might think it is. So in this context, I'm going to present to you about combination pharmacotherapy. You can clearly see that the rationale for using treatment is that any condition has a natural history which is progressive with age, and that's certainly the case for overactive bladder. The plan of treatment, of course, is to reverse that change, the worsening of symptoms, the condition. But of course, the problem, as we've already seen with any of these agents, are the adverse events, which counteracts that positive effect that you are trying to achieve. So the rationale for combination therapy is to take two drugs, as Dr. Wien mentioned, maybe to minimize the anticholinergic effects, for instance, by adding in a beta-3. So let's look at this in more detail. One's got to think in terms of the mechanism of action, and the efficacy that's been demonstrated and consider the adverse events. 
So, as I've mentioned, take a beta-3 and an anticholinergic. Very clearly, they both act on sensory nerves. The muscarinic receptors are, of course, on the muscle, and there is no good evidence that the beta-3 is acting on the muscle as such. Although the marketing uh, has to state that it relaxes a bladder, it could, of course, be relaxing it primarily by an afferent mechanism. So this is obviously helpful if you're not going to then increase and add to the effect of an anti-muscarinic on the detrusor muscle. Four large studies have been carried out looking at the combination of the beta-3 agonist mirabegron and solifenacin. The symphony study you can see here looked at uh, the three groups that you can see using Mibetric, 25 and 50 milligrams, and three doses of solifenacin versus placebo and the three doses of solifenacin. And from that, they chose what seemed to be the sweet point in terms of the potential combination, moving on then to the phase 3b study, which I've shown here, the BESIDE study. And you can see here, the plan was straightforward. It was five or milligrams of solifenacin plus 25 of mirabegron, leading on to that combination, but with 50 milligrams of mibetric versus five milligrams solifenacin or 10 milligrams of solifenacin. And looking at the standard outcome measures, you can see here, uh, looking at uh, improving OASB symptoms, and this is the primary endpoint, adding mirabegron to solifenacin. And you can see the mean adjusted baseline effect and looking at the number of incontinence episodes per 24 hours. You can see the combination appeared to be better than either dose of solifenacin. And you can see the p-value below. Looking then at mean number of micturitions, again, the same sort of finding. In, in looking at the mean number of incontinence episodes during a three-day period, it wasn't so clear-cut. So this shows the variability of data, and sometimes things are difficult to interpret, as we saw from Alan Wien's presentation, that there is disparity in data that you can't always easily address. They used a non-inferiority comparison of combination versus solifenacin 10 milligrams, looking at the number of incontinence episodes per three-day diary. And you can see that there was superiority of combination versus solifenacin 10 milligrams, which was not demonstrated since the upper limit of the 95 confidence interval was, uh, you can see there, greater than one. So there was no evidence of superiority, but there was superiority of, of combination when was demonstrated looking at the mean number of micturitions. But that wasn't the primary endpoint. Certainly, looking at adding mirabegram to solifenacin, there was improvement in uh, quality of life. And you can see improvement in symptom bother and patient's perception of bladder condition. And if that's what is important to patients, and we heard that from Dr. Rovner's presentation, it is often difficult to see what's the most important factor, what's important to the regulators or the pharma company, or what's important to the patient in their perception 
of bladder uh, improvement. And you can see adding mirabegron to solifenison seem to be well tolerated. We've already seen this slide and or a similar slide and you can see that the really this is a combination looking across the board you can see not a great deal of difference except here for hypersensitivity reactions uh, dry mouth was less than the 10 milligrams of solifenison constipation very similar to the 10 milligrams of solifenison impact on treatment on pulse rate there didn't seem to be any clear message there has been large post-marketing surveillance on Mirabegron, which has been uh, published and didn't show any cardiovascular concerns. Now, obviously, the data we saw uh, from Alan Wien, which was about the 25 milligrams of Mibetric, which wasn't manifest in the 50 milligrams, has been borne out by real-life clinical practice. And certainly, the other factor that people often raise is hypertension risk, and the only contraindication to the use of a beta-3 is with a blood pressure of more than 170 systolic over 110 diastolic, according to the product information. And you can see that there was no uh, relative signal with regard to blood pressure effects as long as a patient hasn't got uncontrolled hypertension. So combination therapy with these two agents certainly brings in the benefit of two mechanisms of action and seems to be safe and potentially more effective. Certainly though, you can see that the patients remained incontinent after initial treatment with solifenison, uh, but they should found that there was clinically meaning improvement uh, with, in terms of quality of life, adding in mirabegron. So certainly a potential benefit. How about alpha blockers and 5-alpha reductase inhibitors? Another combination uh, which we often use in clinical practice. Indeed, this is the first combination. And the reason I mention this, and this is from the ICUD meeting many years ago, is because although you can show greater efficacy, as you saw with the VA study, you can see here with the subsequent compound, uh, which was in the combat study, that you've got with adding two agents, such as a 5-alpha reductase and alpha blocker, you get more side effects with two active agents. So this is the downside of combination therapy. And this is just an example to show you that it's not always positive. And these effects on sexual function, of course, with a selective uh, alpha uh, blocker, tamsulosin, uh, plus, uh, plus the 5-alpha reductase. Alpha blocker and antimuscarinic in male patients, this has been looked at, obviously, because of the concern if you've got avoiding efficiency around 40%, in other words, 140, 150 mils, if you go above that, then the worry is about causing increased retention. And so to try and prevent that happening in real life clinical practice, the suggestion was to consider adding in an antimuscarinic. And of course, there's been subsequent data looking at the combination of an alpha antagonist and a beta-3. So if you look at Patients uh, with uh, under treatment here, you can see alpha blocker for voiding and storage LUTs from a number of studies. You can see very clearly a potential benefit. And if you look at an anti-muscarinic in male patients, as we heard from Dr. Wien earlier, you can see a benefit, sorry. You can see here 
that the 10 milligrams has slipped off the slide, but certainly you can see an increasing benefit for patients, male patients using an anticholinergic. So the logical thing is to look at a combination if both drugs potentially work. And certainly you can see from this meta-analysis of a number of randomized studies, antimuscaric and alpha antagonists were superior to monotherapy, improving symptoms and quality of life. And this led on to a development in Europe. This is a Neptune trial where you can see placebo, tamsulosin, uh, using the TOCAS formulation 0.4, and that plus six milligrams of solifenicin or nine milligrams of solifenicin. That was based on the original early studies, phase two data, looking at the, the benef beneficial combination. And certainly this, there seemed to be a positive effect from this treatment by use of combination. This led on to long-term safety and efficacy, uh, long-term safety and efficacy studies looking at this, which you can see here out to one year. And with this approach, you can see this is comparing uh, the combination of six milligrams of solifenicin or nine milligrams solifenicin plus uh, TOCAS versus 0.4 milligrams. And you can see with an initial randomized study that I've shown you, followed by long-term extension out to one year. And certainly, there was a benefit across the board doing that which seemed to be sustained. So certainly there does seem to be, as I've mentioned, a benefit on both storage symptoms, storage IPSS and quality of life. Alpha block and, and beta-3 agonists, some recent work which has been published from Japan, a fairly small study, but which demonstrated a potential benefit doing that. And you can see the study from the States, which was published in Journal of Urology last year from Steve Kaplan and others showed very clearly using this approach that if you look at the next slide, you can see uh, that there was here, looking at the primary endpoint of number of micturitions per day, that there did appear to be a greater benefit using the combination over just tamsulosin alone. And you can see that shown diagrammatically at endpoint on the left, uh, which was at the end of the study, and you can see the change out to uh, three months where you can see that the benefit was uh, increased over the course of time. The majority of the benefit was uh, achieved around the uh, six-week period. And certainly looking at all of the parameters, again, a benefit without any significant increase in adverse uh, adverse events. So there were superior results when were obtained with Tamsios and Mirabegrom in terms of maximum voided volume per micturition, urgency episodes per day, and the, the Tufts score, which uh, total urgency frequency score. These, effic the, these efficacy improvements were considered clinically relevant, and certainly there was no significantly there was no clinically significant improvement, though, in IPSS. But remember, IPSS has only got three storage uh, questions, but the OABQ and the patient's perception of bladder condition. So there, there, here again, you can see a benefit in some parameters, but no improvement in patient's perception. So 
again, the disparity between symptoms and efficacy. Uh, and so this is another unresolved issue, but there were no unexpected safety concerns. We've already heard about PD-5 inhibitors and effects on sensory symptoms. And certainly in Europe, if you come into the market with an indication, you have to compare to an existing drug. And so this led on to the study you see far right, where there was comparison of Tadalafil and Tamsulosin. And Tadalafil had a greater effect on storage symptoms and, of course, a significant impact on erectile function. And a systematic review has confirmed this. Alpha blocker and PD-5 inhibitors, very small studies, but certainly uh, some potential benefit. 5-alpha reductase and PD-5 inhibitor, of course, to try and improve the sexual adverse events, small studies, but certainly, uh, certainly a signal suggesting the combination may be effective than either alone. Beta-3 and PD-5 inhibitor, certainly initial data from Japan showing that there may be a benefit with this. Again, small numbers, not really a regulatory study, and you can't draw definitive conclusions, but may be useful in clinical practice. So at the end of the day, I hope you can see that we have all of these options, and we're just at the start of looking at this in clinical practice. It's now well established to add in a beta-3 to an anti-muscarinic or an anti-muscarinic to a beta-3, a 5-alpha reductase and an alpha blocker. And the other studies have demonstrated possibly an alpha blocker and the beta-3 with good data for that. But the others remain somewhat speculative and we still have to wait and see what real-life clinical practice shows for those. So you have all of these potential options and it's really a matter of using that in clinical practice and seeing how it works out for the benefit of our patients. At the end of the day, we're trying to find a tailored approach to the patient. We've got to consider all of the other factors, hypertension, coronary artery disease, peripheral vascular disease, erectile dysfunction, diabetes, and underlying neurological conditions. So thank you for your attention. Ah, okay, if everyone can hear. Um, I'm going to speak about potential future therapies. This is the same slide you saw before. So here again, we will be talking mostly about category number one. And because it's potential, we'll be talking not only about distally on detrusor smooth muscle and afferent and efferent nerves, but the possibilities all along basically the neural axis because these are the possible sites of action. The main problem again is going to be uroselectivity. Okay, what about the anti-muscarinics? Any possibilities? Their mode of action dictate that they can inhibit only the bladder effects of the endogenous agonist acetylcholine, regardless of whether the release is from cholinergic nerves or non-neuronally from other cell types like the urothelium, as Chris mentioned. And that sort of fits in with the idea of a ceiling effect. In other words, there's a certain 
effect for efficacy that I don't think the anti-muscarinics can really go over. And we may have reached that already. So I can no longer find uh, this drug. This was a selective M3 receptor antagonist. I think we argued about receptor selectivity a very, very long time ago, and we don't argue about that anymore. Um, this was in phase two to three. I can't find it anywhere. This was an interesting idea, combine an antagonist with an agonist to reduce dry mouth. Phase three was in progress in 2015. It's very hard for me to find information about this drug now as well. Afasafenacin, this was a non-selective muscarinic blocker plus a sodium channel blocker to block afferents. The last I heard it was in phase two. I haven't heard from it since. Drugs not yet licensed in the US. I mentioned propivirine before. Propivirine is basically very similar to oxybutynin with at least in the literature, possibly fewer side effects. It's a non-selective anti-muscarinic and like oxybutynin in the laboratory, it has other effects which do not apparently contribute to its clinical effects very much. Martin Michel cites these figures for efficacy. Not sure what the corresponding placebo effects are. Um, others cite a 33 to 80% subjective improvement in their symptoms. I'm surprised actually that this drug has never been brought to the US or never tried in a phase three trial to see whether it is oxybutynin-like with fewer side effects. So perhaps it will. Amatophenicin I mentioned before is a Japanese drug. Um, it's primarily an M3, M1 anti-muscarinic blocker. It's, it works in, in animals uh, as a selective inhibitor of the bladder. Its affinity in salivary gland and colon is less than in bladder. It's been used in a number of Japanese studies. Uh, these are some figures by Dr. Hama, who's a very respected Japanese urologist. Um, purportedly, dry mouth is lower versus solifenicin. Um, it was tried against fesoteridine and didn't seem to have much difference in terms of efficacy or dry mouth. It's unknown whether this will ever be subjected to a phase three study sufficient to get it approved by the FDA in the US. New beta three adrenergic agonist, uh, Salabegron. Um, these phase three studies never happened. Um, again, it was a drug that worked in animals. Uh, there was a positive phase two study in women for urgency urinary incontinence and volume voided. Uh, they never really got to a once daily preparation. It's a twice daily preparation. It seems to sort of be in limbo at the moment. Right of Begron, um, again, another selective beta three agonist um, works in vitro, limited effect on heart rate and blood pressure in animals, was tried in a phase three study. The primary efficacy endpoint was not met. 
sort of an example of what happens to some of these drugs. I'll show you how expensive it is at the end to develop them. So relatively selective in the lab, did relax detrusor smooth muscle in animals, did decrease the intravesical pressure and the frequency of non-voiding contractions. In phase one studies, the only thing it did was increase the volume to the first contraction. And this was the statement about phase two and three, which were never published. It seems that the primary efficacy endpoint was not met. There are a number of beta-3 agonists in the pipeline. When you study these drugs, uh, you do discover different facets of their action. And in studying beta-3 agonists uh, after Mirabegron, it was found that they probably decrease activity additionally by reducing the amount of acetylcholine released from the cholinergic terminals via prejunctional action. And also like the antimuscarinics by reducing bladder afferent activity as well. The PDE5 inhibitors, as I mentioned before, there's no reason why these others shouldn't work just like Tadalafil does for male lower urinary tract symptoms. Um, why do they decrease male lower urinary tract symptoms? Figure this out and you'll be the toast of the town. New targets, negative potassium channel openers, animal models promising, disappointing clinical results, any agents that did not affect blood pressure or cause other adverse events did no better than placebo for overactive bladder. Calcium channel antagonists in vitro inhibit bladder contractility and knockout mice, they had markedly impaired contractility. Clinical trials, no positive results, either therapeutically or as a side effect of their use in cardiovascular disease. New targets, more negative, prostanoid receptor antagonists. Again, um, EP antagonism of the EP1 receptor, increased bladder capacity, micturition intervals, and micturition volume in animals. Minimal clinical results with high incidence of adverse events. Um, so really negative results. New targets, positive results, surprisingly deloxetine, which is a serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor, had very positive results in women for overactive bladder symptomatology, but too many adverse events. Too many women discontinued the drug after a short period of time because of side effects. Are there other SNE reuptake inhibitors that will do the same thing but without any adverse events or without as many, no one really knows, but perhaps there will be developments in that area. Positive results in animals, vitamin three agonists, minimally positive clinical effects in women with overactive bladder, neurokinin receptor antagonists, nice idea. Let me show you what happened with one of them. The neurokinin-1 receptor is a G-protein coupled receptor. It's in the central 
and peripheral nervous system. The antagonists are used for anti-emetic properties, antidepressant properties, and to relieve anxiety. They also block capsaicin-induced detrusor overactivity and dopamine receptor-stimulated detrusor overactivity by some action at the spinal cord level that's incompletely understood, but sounds like a great idea. Here's one used for chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting that was found to significantly improve overactive bladder symptoms in a group of postmenopausal women with primarily urgency urinary incontinence. So this is difference in daily mecturitions and frequency uh, between drug and placebo. As you can see, you can make these look bigger or smaller. This amounts to about 9%. This amounts to about 2%. But you know, here's average number of urgency episodes. This is a decline of a little over 20%. This is a decline of little under 10%, which is low for a placebo result. But the drug placebo ratio, you know, is actually pretty high. So there was some hope for this. The problem was it was deemed not suitable because of potential drug-drug interactions. So Merck pulled out another drug from its bag that was very similar and compared this to tolteridine in a mixed population of adults with overactive bladder and found that tolteridine was better uh, for mean micturitions per day, which was the primary endpoint and all the secondary endpoints. Um, you know, you ask the question, well, gee, if it worked at all, I wonder why it wasn't combined with tolteridine since they're two different classes of drugs. And I think a consistent story you've heard from Chris, uh, from Eric and myself is that two drugs with a different mechanism of action have a chance of producing an efficacy result greater than any one separately. GABA receptor agonists, GABA is the, one of the chief inhibitory compounds in the central nervous system. So here's a selective oral modulator of the GABA B receptor. Again, uh, promising effects in animals. Further studies would be of interest, of course they would, but you can see by these references that we haven't heard from these or about these drugs for quite some time. This drug or this class of drugs, the purinergic receptor antagonists, received a great deal of publicity back in, this is a 2011 uh, article from the Handbook of Experimental Pharmacology about these antagonists. Basically in a normal, whoops, let me go back. In a normal bladder, ATP probably has a minor contribution to contraction and disease changes. It can contribute up to 50% of contraction. And under at least pathologic conditions, ATP released from the urothelium with bladder distension seems to modulate bladder hyperactivity. So inhibition of these sensory purinergic receptors is a potential target. And in fact, this is an experimental model where the volume to the first contraction was increased. You can see that. And looking at this, you can see that as the dose basically uh, increased, the percent change from baseline increased in terms of the total volume held by the bladder. The frequency decreased 
and yet the amplitude of what seemed to be avoiding contraction did not decrease. So on paper, the perfect drug. Uh, unfortunately, this really hasn't come to fruition, although obviously it would be a very efficacious drug if you could prove uroselectivity. The cannabinoids, uh, wow, you know, wouldn't that be great if the cannabinoids really worked? Um, you know, what a great drug to produce that would be if it was legal in all states. Um, there's been a lot of talk about the cannabinoids. The site of action of these drugs really hasn't been established, whether it's the brain, spinal cord, uh, or the periphery in terms of its effect on bladder. In the animal, it does increase micturition intervals. It increases the volume, the bladder holes, and increases the threshold for non-voiding contractions. Um, unfortunately, clinical results have not really proven very much. The meager results that have been shown in multiple sclerosis are in fact just that, meager. The TRP receptor antagonist, this is a family of receptors involved in the perception of noxious stimuli and mechanical sensory transduction in various organs. These are expressed in the bladder and urethra, these antagonists. Uh, they are sensors to, stress and, to stretch and chemical irritation. And this is what they can do basically in an animal. This is TRPV1. Um, this is basically the inner contraction interval with an increasing dose. As you can see, it goes up. This is the voided volumes. They go up so the bladder holds more. This is the mean nerve discharge, which decreases. And this basically is the amplitude essentially of avoiding contraction, which doesn't decrease. So again, on paper, this is kind of an ideal candidate. This has been tried, uh, the TRPV1 antagonists. Unfortunately, they seem to produce hyperthermia. Uh, the TRPM8 antagonists, the, again, they seem to increase bladder capacity, voided volume, and block cold-induced urgency in animals. They decrease the threshold for activation, decreases the micturition initiation threshold, but they cause this one causes hypothermia in animal models. And this one causes a dose dependent, what seems to be a burning sensation around the mouth. So this is Francisco Cruz's quote about the trip receptor potential, which I think still holds. This was 2015. They are a reality that still need an enormous amount of work and dedication before becoming therapeutically useful. And that may take more time than we anticipate at the moment. Mu opioid agonists can modulate micturition. Uh, tramadol reported positive results in proof of concept, but that study was later retracted. Uh, the quote was due to unacceptable statistical errors. Here's another one, um, naltalamide. You can see that this basically decreases uh, non-voiding contractions. Uh, unfortunately, haven't heard much about this drug. The original paper was published in 2014. Um, there were some papers published up through 2017. 
I haven't seen much about this since that time, but obviously if this does prove to be effective, uh, it would prove to be at least an ideal drug to try. Other ideas, eliminate the injection into the detrusor of Botox by using encapsulated liposomes with the bladder installation. Um, it does work, but doesn't seem to work nearly as well as injection into the detrusor muscle. This is sort of prophylactic therapy, trying to prevent the fibrosis, which seems to occur with a lot of lower urinary tract dysfunctions. Um, these are various methodologies of doing this. Here's one that decreases cardiac fibrosis in animals that have pressure overload. But unfortunately, the mortality in the animals was quite high due to a severe cardiovascular reaction. Last one, this is the cover of neurourology and neurodynamics, basically illustrating a study by our fearless course leader, Eric Rovner, who maybe can tell us something about how this is going. This was actually the administration of a gene therapy plasmid vector expressing the human big potassium channel alpha subunit. And basically this is highly expressed on smooth muscle cells. Um, this was studied by intravesical injection and by direct injection into the trigone. The intravesical injection showed minimal effects. The direct injection, you know, these are somewhat peculiar because the placebo in terms of urgency episodes actually got worse and so did the micturition frequency. There were two doses, low dose and high dose, and they both seemed to get better. Um, at 24 weeks, um, these were the changes. Again, some changes more so with the high dose. So this is probably the cleverest idea, you know, I've seen in a very long time. What are the results going to be? The last I heard, there was a phase two study ongoing. So perhaps Eric can tell us more about that. So just in summary, you can combine drugs, as Chris said, you can combine drugs with other forms of treatment. These are new variants of currently accepted principles. None are terribly hot at the moment. Um, last year, Vibegram was in this category. As far as new targets, this is negative proof of concept. I forgot to include or calcium antagonist here, but potassium channel opener, calcium channel antagonist, prostaglandin receptor antagonist, positive proof of concept in animals, but not yet basically in humans. Uh, more promising concepts based on animal data, uh, GABA receptors, uh, purinergic antagonists, the cannabinoids, the trip channels, other areas, um, antifibrotic factors, oxidative stress reduction. You might be interested in this, the success of drugs going on to clinical trials. This was over a 14 year period. The probability of passing stage one, 6.3%. If they did that, the probability of getting through phase two, 31%. If they did that, the probability of getting through phase three, 58%. 
I think we'll stop there and thanks so much for your attention. All right, well, thank you, Alan. Uh, again, I apologize for the lack of um, uh, audio on, on, on my part uh, for the Nocturia section. I want to say that uh, all of the Nocturia information and slides are in the packet uh, provided uh, for this course. So all of the relevant information uh, regarding Nocturia, treatments for Nocturia, approach to Nocturia are all in the uh, slide deck. Uh, at any rate, we're going to um, uh, uh, move along. There hasn't been any new questions. There hasn't been any questions posted on, on chat. Uh, so we are going to proceed. I want to thank all of you. I think this concludes our course. I want to thank all of you, uh, the participants, uh, for joining us. I hope that the course was helpful for you in updating you in uh, pharmacologic therapy for overactive bladder. Uh, both uh, what we are currently utilizing uh, as well as uh, some potential future therapies. Um, I want to thank uh, Drs. Chapel and Ween for, again, excellent presentations. Uh, they update these talks uh, every year um, and uh, always provide new information uh, for me and I hope for you, uh, uh, the uh, folks in the audience who are uh, hopefully uh, gaining some useful information. Finally, I want to thank the AUA staff uh, 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 Barbara and Sarah and Aaron and the rest uh, for assisting us uh, to be able to provide this course for you uh, in its total. So thank you again. I wish you all a uh, happy weekend and a great rest of the AUA meeting and look forward to seeing all of you in, in Las Vegas in September. Thank you. <laughs>